Thank you that you've called us to be a church that would come and to study the, the whole counsel of yours, God, to know you, our living God. Father, I thank you that looking even at you being a God of wrath, that that brings encouragement to our souls. Thank you that you are a just God, that you will not allow sin to go unpunished. Father, would you open our our hearts and minds to this truth this morning, that we would be refreshed and encouraged in it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. in the small town of Ringe, New Hampshire, to learn about Edward Payson, a man whose spiritual legacy has been all but forgotten. In his day, Payson was the pastor of the largest church in Maine. He ministered during that season of unusual grace, which we call the Second Great Awakening. When Payson died, Archibald Alexander, the professor of theology at Princeton, said, no man in our country has left behind him a higher character for imminent holiness than Edward Payson. Above all, Payson was distinguished by his remarkable prayer life. Many who heard him preach said that his public prayers made a deep impression on them. But if his public praying was noteworthy, his private praying was more so. I have in my hands a copy of Payson's biography. It is considered to be the most influential ministerial biography to appear in the United States in the first half of the 19th century. In it, we find his journal entries in which he records repeated seasons of prayer throughout his Christian life. One day he writes, I have been abundantly convinced today that it is not a useless and vain thing to call upon God. In the evening, I was favored with an uncommonly precious season in prayer. Oh, how different does everything appear when God is present. On another day, he records, spent the day in fasting and prayer was favored with near access to my Heavenly Father and a sense of His perfections. This journal also reveals Payson's spiritual struggles. It shows a man wrestling with doubts and temptation. One day he speaks of the nearness of God, and then a few days later he admits that he spent an entire day fasting but could never seem to offer up a single prayer. Payson's journals reveal the heights and the depths of the Christian life, and through them all, he walked with the living God. Edward Payson was born here in Ringe on July 25, 1783. His father, Seth Payson, became minister here in 1782 at the First Congregational Church. Raised in a godly home, Edward Payson never stopped expressing gratitude for his parents' influence in his life. But as we will see, 
It was not until he left home that he himself came under the saving rule of Jesus Christ. We've traveled to Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts to discuss the next stage of Edward Payson's life. Payson entered Harvard at the age of 17. His father was concerned because he did not see adequate evidence that his son was a true Christian. He told young Edward, to give you a liberal education while destitute of religion would be like putting a sword into the hands of a madman. During his time here, Payson proved to be a diligent student, and it was a common joke in his day that he had read every book in the college library. Sadly, however, spiritual matters were far from his mind. Looking back on these years, he wrote that the amusements of a college life had taken a powerful hold upon him, and gradually, he became indifferent to the things of God. At times, Payson attempted to clean up his behavior, but without Christ, his best efforts were short-lived and ineffective. This pattern continued until he received the unexpected news of his brother's death. It shocked him into a serious pursuit of God, and two years later, after graduation, he publicly professed his faith in Christ. At that time, he wrote, I am so happy that I cannot possibly think nor write of anything else. And he described the gospel of Christ as such a glorious, beautiful, consistent scheme for the redemption of such miserable wretches, infinite love and goodness joined with wisdom. Upon graduation from Harvard, Edward Payson became a teacher at a little school in Portland, Maine. But it wasn't long before he felt convinced of a call to the gospel ministry, and he returned home to study and prepare himself. He spent extensive periods in solitude, reading, fasting, and praying. Payson was a sensitive young man, and he was often susceptible to periods of spiritual despair. During this time of preparation, he passed through many temptations and struggles, struggles that would one day help him to be a wise shepherd of other souls. In 1807, Payson began his ministry as pastor of the Second Congregational Church here in Portland, Maine. He held this position until he died in 1827. During the early days of his ministry, he wrote, Never did the world seem such a nothing. Never did heaven appear so near, God's promises so real, and his perfections. What shall I say of them? When I think of one, I wish to dwell upon it forever but another and another equally glorious claims a share of admiration. Payson saw seasons of genuine revival in his 20 years of pastoring, the most notable occurring in 1813, 1822, and 1827. During one such season, Payson wrote, I am so astonished to see what God is doing that I can scarcely get an hour's sleep. As a pastor, he expected faith to produce fruit in the life. He warned his people, if there is one fact or doctrine or promise in the Bible which has produced no practical effect on your temper and conduct, be assured that you do not truly believe it. His Christianity also affected his life at home. He and his wife, Anna, were happily married for 16 years. They had eight children. Edward Payson cared for their souls, as is evidenced by the book, The Pastor's Daughter, written by his daughter, Louisa. The book consists of conversations between a father and a daughter about her soul. We are safe to assume these conversations took place between Edward and Louisa. 
another daughter, Elizabeth, wrote the hymn, More Love to Thee, O Christ, and the book, Stepping Heavenward. Sadly, Payson's health began to fail him. He contracted a disease which crippled him, causing continual pain and nightly convulsions. But as his suffering grew, so did his joy in God. In the midst of terrible pain, Payson wrote, I can find no words to express my happiness. I seem to be swimming in a river of pleasure, which is carrying me on to that great fountain. His wife records that Edward's final moments were spent singing for joy, as if he were already viewing the glorified Christ. This memorial marks his grave. This week you have an opportunity to set your heart upon the same God, the God who is the song of his children, even through the darkest of times. The wrath of God. We have defined it this week as God's enduring opposition to everything that is unlike himself, that is impure. His displeasure with and indignation against all who oppose his rule. His determination to be the enemy of sin wherever it is found until it is fully eradicated. Now, the wrath of God is one of the perfections of God. It is part of the weight of His majesty. But it is a truth that many people who claim to love the Lord would wish to avoid. Or perhaps they feel it's necessary to apologize for it, as if God were a child that throws a tantrum and it embarrasses his family members. You don't have to go so far as to deny the wrath of God. You could simply choose to neglect a careful study of it and if you did, you would find yourself worshiping a God that you fashioned in your own imagination and not the God of the Bible. When we take an honest look at God's wrath as we find it in Scripture, we must admit that it is a very difficult topic and it's a terrible reality. But part of the difficulty comes when we humanize the wrath of God. In other words, when we approach this attribute by beginning with our understanding of wrath, our experience of anger, and then moving from the human anger and trying to apply that to God, just elevating it, making it a lot bigger and more powerful. But God's wrath isn't really like our wrath. So perhaps at the end of this week, it would help us if we reviewed some of the key points that you studied earlier, and then we will look at one portrait of the wrath of God seen in its connection with the saving rule of Jesus Christ right now. So let's review some of the things we looked at earlier in the week. You need to remind yourself that God's wrath is not isolated from all the other attributes that you've been studying. So His wrath is immutable or unchanging. God's attitude towards sin cannot be altered. If we look at the way God feels about sin at the flood or at Sodom and Gomorrah, or even in the final judgment and hell. It is the way God feels about sin right now. It is the way that God feels about our sin. The cross of Christ has satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of His people by pouring out His wrath on His Son, but it has not altered God's attitude towards sin. The wrath of God is not only unchanging, it's infinite. It can never be calculated it could never be fully described. It cannot be limited. 
God possesses infinite wrath. Now, God limits the exercise of his wrath, and we're grateful for that, for that mercy. But in its essence, it's infinite. Psalm 90, Moses asks, God, who knows the power of your anger? It is an all-present wrath. Do you remember the sermon from Acts 17? Paul says to the Athenians, In him we live and move and have our being. But you could say that and be accurate with any of God's attributes. You could say since God is all-present, you could say that in his love we live and move and have our being. In his purity we live and move and have our being. But you could also say in his holy anger, We live and move and have our being because everywhere we go, God is already there and he is there opposing, hating sin. It is an all-knowing wrath. His opposition to sin is united to his perfect knowledge, his awareness of every person's thoughts and desires, every person's words, every person's choices, every day and every night without exception. The wrath of God will never be exercised in a way that is unjust or misguided because it can never be misinformed. It is an all-powerful wrath. God's wrath possesses all the power that it requires to do all it desires to do. It is a sovereign wrath. God's wrath possesses all the sovereignty or all the right to do all that God wishes to do in His anger. It is a holy wrath. It is separate from all imperfection. Its motives are spotless. It is a faithful wrath. Every gracious promise and every righteous warning will be accomplished. Not one of them will be left undone. It is a patient wrath. The delay of God's wrath that we see every day is not due to God's indifference or his ignorance of what's going on, but it is That God with all power is restraining his wrath until all wisdom comes to the place where it wishes to release it. It is a wrath that is united to love. It is because God perfectly loves what is pure that he must hate and oppose everything that is impure. Now, when we consider these things, they ought to help us to kind of get some framework to understand that the wrath of God is part of the perfection and the beauty of God. But I do want us to look together now at a picture of Christ's rule, how he is rescuing his people and completing all that the Father has given him to do, and how this rule is linked with his wrath. And for that, we're not going to look primarily at the New Testament, but into the Old Testament to a song that was written by David, Psalm 110. It is a song that tells of the enthronement of the Messiah after his return to heaven. And at the end of this psalm, we will notice this issue of wrath. But I want us to keep it in the context and keep it connected with all the other things that Christ is doing. So let's look at the psalm, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So here's the great coronation. On earth, a man assumes a throne when he has conquered all of his opponents or when a prince comes of age. Here, the Lord Jesus is placed at the right hand of the Father after the successful completion of his labors on earth as our Redeemer. What a change of scene. Have you ever stopped to think of it? 
Psalm 110 describes the return of Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Father leans over and says something to the Son. And David tells us about it here. We don't read about it any other place in Scripture. But have you ever considered the change of scene? He has gone from sin-bearer to co-ruler of the universe. As sin-bearer on the cross, he assumes our humanity and becomes our sin. The guilt and shame of every sin of every believer, all our sins, the worst of our sins, are all placed on Christ at once. And the Father turns away from Him in a holy hatred of all that we have done as He bears our guilt. From that to this scene in Psalm 110, co-ruler of the universe. It reminds us of Revelation 5. John describes the return of Christ. He comes to the Father. He takes the scroll. He's seated by the Father. And then John writes this. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, there's the picture the angelic host surrounding the throne, worshiping Christ. But then John sees a bigger picture. He goes on to write, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. A modern author named Walter Chantry wrote a very helpful little book on Psalm 110. He also included Psalm 2 and Psalm 45. And the book is entitled Praises for the King of Kings. I want to quote Chantry a few times as we look at this passage because the things he says are just so helpful. When he describes verse 1, he says this, The Son is permanently installed upon the Father's right hand in order to share all of His authority and to administer all his will. Christ will participate in the totality of divine power and dominion. Something is said to Christ. The Lord, that is the I am, the self-existing being, eternal God, leans over and says, David says, to my Lord, that is David's master, David's Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, the offspring of David, son of David, but also son of God. And what does the Father say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we have a throne and we have a footstool. Now, what's the purpose of the footstool? Not like a modern footstool used for comfort, but in the Old Testament, the footstool was a symbol of victory. In the history of Israel, we have an example. Joshua is leading the Israelites into Canaan. They're battling all the nations. At one point, five kings gather together, and they bring their armies together against Israel. And Joshua conquers them. The kings are hiding in a cave after their armies flee. And Joshua has the kings brought out of the cave, and he has them lay down on the ground. And Joshua has his generals come and put their feet on the necks of the kings. It's a symbol of the utter destruction of their foes. 
Here in Psalm 110, when the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, it is clear that it is the Father's everlasting determination to bring every idea, every concept, every nation, every religion, every individual that opposes the claims of Jesus Christ and to throw them all beneath his feet. There is a third picture. There is a scepter. Look at verse 2. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The scepter was a, a golden staff. It was a symbol of the rule, of the extent of the rule of a monarch. God says to the Lord Jesus Christ, as he's enthroned after his redemptive labors, I will stretch out your rule, and you will rule over all creation. But specifically here, you will rule in the midst of your enemies. Now that's unusual, isn't it? We tend to think of the power of a king as defined by the extent to which that king can remove all enemies from his borders. But Christ does not push his enemies out of his borders and rule a small select area. Christ rules at the heart of the enemy's strongholds. In those places where people feel that they are most safe, most distant from the influence of Jesus Christ and his gospel, it's at that place that Christ rules. So you can think of the great centers of political power or the academic universities or the dark places where every pleasure is promised or even in church where the hypocrites hide. God stretches the scepter of his son over all those people and he brings them under his rule. Those that are intoxicated with power, he wins by a greater display of power. The new birth. Those who are hiding behind academic learning, God captures them with greater arguments. Those who are surrounded by sinful pleasures, he shows them a more enticing way. To those who shelter themselves in the paper fortress of religion and self-righteousness, Christ hunts them down, brings them out, and into the refuge of his righteousness. There is no nation. There is no place. There is no family. There is no type of person that is immune to the rule of Jesus of Nazareth. Look closely. The rule proceeds from Zion or from Jerusalem or from God's people. We can apply this to the church. However weak and insignificant the church may appear, however it's crushed by world powers, seduced by sin, betrayed by false teachers, she is at the heart of Christ's conquest. Now let's look at the next verse and we see his armies. Verse 3, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Now this is a difficult verse to translate and so some Bibles have different approaches to this verse. If we simplify it to its basic elements, I think that we'll be, we'll be agreed. There is an army here. These are the believers once enemies of Christ, now every one of them is a volunteer. None of them have been drafted or forced. Once dirty and filthy, they are all now dressed in the righteousness of Christ. They're wearing white clothing. And once part of that great company that rejected the gospel, now they are part of a great company, an innumerable host, as numerous as the dew. 
In verse 4, we return to a picture of the king. But there's a mystery here. He's a priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So here's the mystery. In Israel, to be a king, you have to be from the tribe of Judah. In Israel, to be a priest, you have to be from the tribe of Levi. Jesus of Nazareth is from the tribe of Judah. How is it that the Christian can hope? How is it that David can write a thousand years before the birth of Jesus that the coming Messiah from the tribe of Judah would also be the high priest? Well, the answer is found in two aspects in this verse. First, he is made a priest not by the Levitical or the Mosaic law. He is made a priest by an oath from God. That is, there's a special appointment by the Father in heaven to make his son king and priest. And that's what we see in this person, Melchizedek, this mysterious figure in the Old Testament. We read about him in the book of Genesis. When Abram is coming back from a war, he meets Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is not a Jew, much less a Levite. And Melchizedek lives before the Mosaic law. But he is a priest of God, and he accepts a tithe from Abraham. Who is this person? Well, we aren't told when his life ends. He goes from this scene in Genesis and he just kind of fades out. We don't know when he died. We do know that his name means the king of righteousness. And he ruled over the city of Salem or peace. Do you see Christ there? David is writing a thousand years before the birth of Jesus and he's saying, the king that will be seated at the right hand of the father will be the high priest. And though he's from the tribe of Judah... He will be appointed by a special decree by the Father, like Melchizedek. Think of it. Like Melchizedek, there's a special appointment. He's not a Levite. Like Melchizedek, his priesthood has no end. Like Melchizedek, he is the king of righteousness. And like Melchizedek, he rules over the city of peace. So there is a warrior king declared to be priest. He conquers He rules, he protects, he provides for his people, but he also, as a priest, pleads their case and intercedes for them with God. Walter Chantry again says this, If Jesus ever takes upon himself to mediate your dispute with the holy God, however desperate your condition as a sinner, however unfavorable your case seems, this Advocate Jesus Christ will be honorably received at court when he represents you. Every time. A priest. Now we come to another picture, but it's not a picture of the king in heaven. The scene changes. It's still a picture of our king, but now he takes the battlefield. Look at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this is the end of times. Christ leaves the throne, so to speak. He arms himself and he takes the field of battle to shatter all opposition that yet remains. 
He will, as the one entrusted with accomplishing the will of the Father. Do you remember the scroll in the hand of Jesus in Revelation 5? He will pour out His wrath on all those who yet reject His rule. All the enemies of Christ will be shattered beyond repair. He fills the land with the bodies of His enemies. Here is the infinite Son of God unleashing the infinite wrath of God on those who remain unrepentant. Now, how do we know that this king, when he takes the battlefield, will succeed and that there will be no enemies left standing? Well, two things. First, it says, God is at his right hand. God the Father is personally invested in the ultimate conquest of his son. But second, there is a stream. Strange picture. Here's Christ. He's on a battlefield. He's the only one standing. All around him are the corpses of his enemies. You think of Isaiah 63, the picture of Christ coming up from the, from the capital of his enemies and his robes are covered in blood. You think of the book of Revelation, his robes are splattered in blood. He's covered in the blood of his enemies, their corpses are all around him, he's the last one standing. And right through the middle of this battlefield is a brook or a stream. Why does David use this metaphor? Well, think of the account of the life of Samson, it might help us. Samson took up the jawbone of a donkey and killed 1,000 Philistine soldiers. But do you remember the end of the account? He's thirsty after this long battle. He can't find any water and he's afraid he will die, not from a Philistine, but from lack of water. So Judges 15, we read this. Then he became very thirsty and he called to the Lord and he said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now, shall I die of thirst? And fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that the water came out of it. When he drank, his strength returned and he revived. The stream in this psalm is a symbol that answers the lie that always comes to the believer. It's been so long, we say. Maybe Christ won't complete the conquest. It's been 2,000 years. Maybe some who rebel against Jesus Christ and reject His claims will remain unconquered. Or you look in the mirror. There's sin here that has been here for so long. There are these besetting, stubborn sins. And I've cried out to God about them so many times. I've read my Bible. I've studied. I've tried to apply the Scripture to them. But they seem... To cling to me, God, will any of those remain unconquered? And the answer is no. And if you have any doubt, remember, there is a stream running through the battlefield. And if Christ ever got weary, he could stoop down and drink and be refreshed and carry on the battle until every aspect of sin is destroyed. Outside of the Christian and in the Christian. Well, let's think of three applications that come when we consider the wrath of God being unleashed by His Son in His saving rule. First, there is obviously a warning to anyone who would fight against Christ. When Christ arises in wrath, in Psalm 110, it is too late. It is too late to try to strike a bargain. John tells us about this event in Revelation 6. After describing the cosmic upheaval that occurs when Christ comes to judge, then John writes this, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, 
the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Infinite wrath fills the God-man on the throne and he will release it. If you have any doubt... Unbeliever, if you think you'll outwit him, outrun him, outfight him, remember two pictures. Footstool, you will be his footstool. And stream, he will be continually refreshed by the Father to see to it that he has all he needs to crush you. But there is another picture here, isn't it? Before we leave the warning, remember the picture of a priest. Here is Christ enthroned, ready to pour out the wrath of the Father. And there's a priest. He is equipped by God the Father to perfectly intercede for every rebel who comes to God through him, brokenhearted, leaving behind sin's promises, but also leaving behind your self-righteousness, hoping only in this King. Volunteer freely. There's cause for worship here, not just warning. Psalm 110 is full of pictures that ought to fill a Christian with adoration. The triumphant throne is occupied, the footstool, the holy army, an everlasting priesthood, and the brook on the battlefield. That last scene, the battlefield, it does remind us of what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1. He speaks of a coming day, and he says this, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. And to be marveled at among all who believe. What a strange way of describing this final display. This coming of Christ. This outpouring of wrath. It's a day he comes to be what? Glorified in his saints and marveled at by all who believe. Do you glory in the wrath of God as one of his perfections? It is a dark color in God's portrait. But without it, the portrait is incomplete. Do you marvel at what you see of Jesus Christ here, even in the judgment? It is the perfection of our God that he will judge all who persist unrepentant in their rebellion. Think of the glory you see when God damns Satan and his demonic companions. Think of the glory you see when God judges the gods of this world, the empty idols that have lied. Think of the glory you see, even at the end of time, like in Revelation 19, when the world powers that tried to seduce God's people are forever judged. In Revelation 19, we read this. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power 
belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. Again they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Whose smoke? It's a symbol of the world that's rejected Christ. Do you see the scene? The believers in heaven see God cast down unbelievers into hell, and they feel that as terrible as it is, it is an aspect of God's glory, and it calls forth from them worship. Do you see the glory of God and His wrath even in a passage like Matthew 7 when Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Christ on his throne, dividing humanity, pouring out an infinite wrath on people who love to go to church and talk about obeying Jesus, who love to talk about Christ's lordship, but who refused to obey him themselves. Can you see the glory of God in that destruction? We must Never forget that the God-man possesses and will unleash forever all the righteous anger of God. In Deuteronomy 32, you studied this week a passage that describes God's wrath. I want to read that to you now as we bring things to a close. And I want you to listen to it with the sight of Christ, your mediator, on the throne. This is what it says. Now see that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. If I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies. I will repay those who hate me. Now, that's the Christ that we are called to worship, all of him. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would open our eyes to see not merely the beauty of your all power, all knowledge, your purity, your love and mercy, all the moral perfections that we've studied, but also to see that there is beauty even in this terrible aspect of wrath that you are the God who infinitely hates all that is impure. And you have declared an unceasing war against those who oppose you. Have mercy, God. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the wrath of God is a necessary extension of the holiness of God. Uh, because God is holy, He therefore is set apart from sin, but he is also against all sin. And his wrath is the just vengeance of his punishment that is to be inflicted uh, upon all that is in violation of his own holy character and falls short of the standard in his word. So the wrath of God is a glorious part uh, of God's being and of God's character. 
and it causes the grace of God to shine all the more brightly. That justice is essential to understand the gospel. Because in the gospel, what happens is that God meets the demands of his justice through his son, through his double obedience, his passive and his active obedience, paying for sin, obeying the law perfectly. Then God can be just and the justifier of him, Romans 3.23, who believes in Jesus. Because Jesus has done everything for that sinner, paid for that sin, so the Father can say, in the courtroom of our own conscience, deliver that sinner from going down into the pit, for I have found a ransom in my son. Um, the wrath of God is a very important aspect of our understanding the cross uh, upon which Christ died, because not only did he bear our sins in his body upon the tree, 1 Peter 2.24, but as he bore our sins, he bore the wrath of God upon our sins. He became a curse for us. And it's been well said, only those who are suffering the torment of the damned this moment in hell can even begin to comprehend the wrath that Jesus absorbed upon the cross as he, as he died in our place. Only God knows what sin merits and deserves. We don't. Uh, we are not more compassionate and more loving than Jesus Christ. And it is he who spoke most often on the justice of God and warned us with tears to uh, prepare to meet him. Um, Jesus had more to say about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And if you want to preach like Jesus, then you're going to have to preach on hell. Every child of God comes to a point in his life at some point where they say, you know what, were it not for Jesus satisfying the justice of God for me, I'd go to hell and God would be just in sending me there. You see, the wonder is not that anybody goes to hell. The wonder is that anybody goes to heaven because we all deserve hell. So it's just God's sheer grace in Jesus that God's justice is satisfied so God can allow us into heaven only for Jesus' sake. Solus Christus. There is no cosmic malice. There is no malevolence in God. In when he takes from us those we love the most, when he breaks our hearts, when the things we most desire we do not get, when we fail our exams, when we discover the lump, it is not because he has failed for a moment by looking away or that he has permitted such um, pains unjustly to come into our lives. God is just. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You go into him and he's light and in and in and he's light and in and in and in and he's light and in and in and in and in and he's light and in and in and in and in and in. And all you see in God is his light, the light of his justice, the light of his righteousness, that he is impeccable, that he's holy. There's not a little dark corner somewhere in heaven. 
<laughs> in which there's a dark cupboard and a dark drawer, and in that dark drawer there's something malevolent about God. There isn't one rogue molecule of injustice in God at all in whatever he does. He is right. There's much mystery in God in what he does. But the justice of God and the righteousness of God are not challengeable attributes. To me, if a man faces the justice of God, and I realize I deserve to perish forever, and God saves me, and performs that incredible wonder, that I'm in Christ, my whole life is in Christ, I'm a new creation, I want to serve him with my whole way of life. I don't want to be flippant. I want to be holy in my whole way of life. I want my worship, my public worship, to be holy. I want my private worship to be holy. I don't want to joke about my past. I don't want to joke about sin at all. Sin is abominable. Sin is spiritual insanity. Sin is awful. I think once you, once you really understand the justice and holiness of God, you want to live a holy life. Amen to that, right? I loved Joel Beakey's passion. If you've ever listened to Beakey before, he doesn't often get that passionate with tears in his eyes, but understanding the truth. Like, if you truly believe in this God who is holy, and yet this God would forgive you through his son. It's tears. You know, many will ask the question, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? How could a holy God not send everyone to hell? But praise be to Jesus Christ. Praise be to God, who demonstrated his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. Let's pray together. Father, what a, a glorious truth that we got to be encouraged in this morning. Father, we thank you for sending your son Christ to seek and to save that which is lost. We thank you for the cosmic transaction that our sins would be imputed to him and his righteousness would be imputed to us. Father, this truth should cause us to weep, should humble us, and as Dr. Beeky said, it should cause us to respond by living our lives as being poured out as an offering for your glory, for your namesake. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes.